0: Hi, I'm Dr. Paula Redmond, a clinical psychologist, and you're listening to the When Work Hurts podcast. On this show, I want to explore the stories behind the statistics of the mental health crisis facing healthcare professionals today, and to provide hope for a way out through compassion, connection, and creativity. Join me as I talk to inspiring clinicians and thought leaders in healthcare about their unique insights. And learn how we can support ourselves and each other when work hurts. Burnout is a really hot topic right now. We know that increasingly high proportions of NHS staff are reporting significant levels of burnout. But what exactly is burnout and what can we do about it? In this week's episode I put these questions to Dr Julie Highfield who is a consultant clinical psychologist in adult and paediatric critical care and the National Wellbeing Director for the Intensive Care Society. I started off by asking her to define burnout, as it's a term that's often used to mean a range of different things.
1: I completely agree with you. I think it's often misconstrued. So we have to think about the kind of three elements of burnout together. So that chronic state of emotional Exhaustion, so that's element one. Feeling disconnected from the work or cynical is element two, along with that feeling of getting nowhere, so that not really achieving much at work. And all of those three things together what constitutes burnout syndrome and that's the really important thing it's syndrome it's not a diagnosis it's a cluster of symptoms that occur together it just made it into icd-11 actually so yeah and and i think the other thing is is importantly recognized as not a mental health condition but a work-based phenomenon So, you know, the the more kind of recent researchers, Christina Maslach being the key one, has really pushed that it's an organisational phenomenon rather than an individual phenomenon. But I think so much of what we hear and talk about is very much on that individual case by case basis rather than recognising actually this is something that happens in clusters of people
0: we have mentioned you know that it can be something that is misconstrued or, or misunderstood what what have you found have been the most common misunderstandings around burnout
1: i I'm, I'm going to give myself as an example
0: here today
1: so here i am last day before two weeks annual leave and I, i'm i'm at my peak exhaustion I would say. So it would be really easy for me in casual conversation to say, oh, I'm so burnt out. Like in casual conversation, people say, oh, I'm so depressed. But actually what I mean is I'm tired. Actually, it's time for a break. It's time to recharge the batteries. Do I still care about my job? Yeah, I love it. I love my job. Do I still feel connected emotionally to my job? Yeah, absolutely. I I go up and down, but I still very much feel connected to the work. And you know, there are days where achieving something is a challenge, but it still feels like there's always the win. So, in those terms, actually, all all I really have is the emotional exhaustion, which just says I'm tired and I'm in need of a, a break and a sip and a rest and I think you I often come across people in that position and I ask them yeah but how do you feel about your job do you still love it do you still get something from it do you still feel like you're getting somewhere and and that's actually really useful because I, I think particularly the people I work with are not psychologically trained they're often nurses doctors in acute settings and they hit, they're used to diagnostic labels so they hear this stuff in the press and you know in Facebook memes and Twitter and all, all those sort of social media and and they're worried is that me do I have this diagnosis so I, I think is quite often really really helpful to help break it down with people and say actually no you're emotionally exhausted or tired really different side of it that I have to say I I tend to see the exhaustion more in nurses in doctors I tend to see the more kind of disconnection and actually it's really important to recognize the difference between burnout and rust out actually and I think clinical psychologists are dabbling quite a lot in the area of, of kind of workplace wellbeing. Aren't we? I'm, I'm there too. And actually, it was an organizational psychologist that taught me that concept. It's really well known in organizational psychology. So, that rust out is basically my job's just not stretching me anymore. I'm a bit bored. I'm a bit disinterested so actually that's a really important thing that a lot of people will get to when they get they've got everything they can get out of their job and so that sense of not achieving that sense of disconnection is in fact actually I'm kind of I'm ready for the next challenge rather than rather than their unwell or struggling with burnout Oh, that's a really nice distinction.
0: And do you think, so within those three parts of burnout, and and you mentioned there that that you kind of see nurses experiencing more emotional exhaustion, doctors might be the more disconnected. So I guess is there a sense that people might have a kind of profile within those three parts, that for some people it might be more, they might have features of each, but they might have more of one than the other?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, this is part of a study that I conducted with the Intensive Care Society in 2019. Actually, we've got a paper uh, about it and exactly that. So obviously within the area of critical care, but I think you can see it, sort of the findings expanding to other kind of areas. So what we found were the allied health professionals and nurses were higher on the emotional exhaustion. Whereas doctors were higher on the disconnection, dissatisfaction. What's interesting is Maslach's research says that those are the two most important components, that actually the the sense of achievement is almost like an independent factor that runs runs alongside. So, yeah, certainly thinking about that profile, well, actually you think about the nature of the work of a doctor making difficult decisions potentially breaking bad news, potentially withdrawing life-sustaining treatment, etc., those sorts of things, actually, if they're too emotionally connected to the work that they do, it's quite damaging. So you can see that, that at one point, actually, a little disconnection from the work is actually quite helpful. It's just when it tips the other side and that's that's kind of links to to the whole intelligent kindness kind of literature which would be a really good thing to, to talk about in a bit the emotional exhaustion side in terms of nurses we actually you think doctors can step away from the bedside nurses typically you know, in intensive care they're at the end of the bedside one-to-one 12-hour shifts there's really interesting stuff from Jill Maben that says fatigue kicks in at eight hours for nurses so they spend four hours of their shift, so a third of their shift in mini-emotional exhaustion, if you like, in mini-compassion fatigue. So you kind of think is that almost inevitable because of the way we set up shifts. So you know, allied health professionals are somewhere in between. They can step in and out, but they tend to be more present. I mean, you, you look at other areas, kind of wards, where you haven't got the same intensity of ratios, but it's still the case that... Nurses and allied health professionals are forever present. Doctors step in, step out. So it's almost something about the nature of the work lends itself to which part of of burnout might be emphasised.
0: And I also want to ask you about, you said, you know, burnout isn't a mental health diagnosis. It's understood as an organisational phenomenon, but... Where does that lie with mental health problems? Where where are the edges between burnout and depression, anxiety and also trauma? Because I I suppose I wonder whether sometimes people use that word and and there isn't specificity around what people mean, whether they are depressed or burnt out or burnt out rather than depressed. And whether actually, particularly, I guess, over the last couple of years, whether there's a lot of trauma around and and burnout is an easier Thing
1: to hang that on? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a difficult one, and I, again, it's that tendency to to put a diagnostic label on it rather than as as you and I would want to be more more kind of formulation driven and understanding the context. But I guess that is the nature of their their settings. So that, you know, they like that diagnostic shorthand don't they I think for me when I think about it, kind of a couple of sort of case examples in my head and, and sort of typical profiles as you say what I find is that there's a lot of people I've worked with that have been constantly on if you like they've worked hard they've had to do more in the context of having less resource to give to each Patient and family members. So this is where our friend moral distress, or it's not really without friendly, is it? But it comes in in terms of that discrepancy between what they would like to provide and what they're able to provide. That that kind of gap in the middle, I think, forces people with integrity, clinical integrity, to work harder to fill that gap. So you think, okay, well, what are you doing there? You're actually pushing that emotional exhaustion, you're giving, you're giving, you're giving. I think alongside that, although, you know, where I work in intensive care is a high vicarious trauma environment, I think what I see, is, is a lot of almost lacking space to process emotionally. So it's each thing that they see, they don't necessarily have the catharsis to let it go because the next thing and the next thing. And obviously, in the pandemic, it's next, 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 next. It's, it's just high frequency, really, all the same thing, but things that they're trained to do. So, what you can have is that almost that emotional blocking. And I think it, it it's the stuff of kind of this is where almost the, the crossover between diagnostic labels, isn't it? So you think about that kind of emotional avoidance that can happen and trying not to think that things kind of pushing through and intruding. So, so such would click those diagnostic markers for trauma. But actually what lies beneath it is that chronic state of being on all the time, and chronic state of activation. You can get kind of anxiety or depression in the mix depending on people's sort of personality baseline. So for some people, that chronic state of on just then spreads and it, it kind of becomes those worrying thoughts. They start to think about what's going on at home, etc. They've witnessed bad things. They extrapolate those bad things to their home life, Versus someone who's more perfectionistic, self-critical, actually it will flatten their mood. So there's so much crossover. And I have to say, I work in a, a sort of fairly kind of medium scale tertiary referral centre hospital. And I went through everyone that has come to me over the last two years and just looked at my sort of one or two sort of word label for what they've been through and only one or two of them could I give that clear sense of that's definitely PTSD, that definitely fits in the realm of burnout. I think often it just feels like a messy quagmire really and I think that's what's not helpful for staff. Within it I think that the sadness and the complexity is that actually most staff are exhausted right now Some of them are disconnecting from the work to protect themselves. So it's almost like burnout is coping. Part of that disconnection interferes with good trauma processing because you're trying to disconnect and and care a little less. You don't want to think about work outside of work. And for some people, instead of seeing that as a systemic failure in the NHS, they will point that arrow inwards. So it will affect their mood, it will affect how they feel about themselves. Sometimes part of the work I do is to help them to, to, to not feel upset with themselves, but to recognise actually that that's system failure. But the problem is, is that's out of our control, isn't it? <laughs> so in in many ways, it's it's easier to bash yourself with a stick and, and improve yourself because the
0: system is is big and rusty and a bit of a mess. And it's really tricky working in that space, you know, the kind of workplace wellbeing or, you know, the work that I do, which is largely individual work, where you're coming up against that all the time, that the causes of burnout are, you know, these big, systemic, complex issues that as individuals we can't change, but the impact is so personal and how we find ways of, of making sense of that that doesn't cause more harm, but it's in some way empowering in order for people to keep going or decide not to, what whatever is going to be most useful. I wonder how you navigate that working within the organisations in terms of that fine line between offering support and not... I don't know, I, I struggle with the whole kind of resilience thing because I, I think not necessarily the idea of resilience, but but the way it's used to locate the problem within individuals and the solution within individuals.
1: Yeah, it's a tricky one. I, I too struggle with the word resilience. It, it's not a bad word, but just like compassion, it ends up being almost a. A way of saying, well, you, you're you the problem. You need to be more resilient. You need to be more compassionate, rather than how do we enable and harness your resilience? How are we a resilient system? And also, how do we enable that compassionate system as well, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it's hard. I, it, I think it's always hard to have one foot in and I think the way I've managed myself over the years is to always have one foot out to try to position halfway in halfway out because I think that the thing that was hardest for me at the peak of the pandemic certainly but I think it's always there when you're integral to a system is the fact that you're thinking yeah I agree and also somewhat me too And it's really, really hard not to then collude with some of that negativity Mm. and almost the emotional contagion that can happen because in an interesting way, someone comes to you and their words and you think, gosh... Uh, that's really helpful for me to hear that you feel like that, which is one of those really really hard things I think for for any psychologist or, or anyone in that position of helping, alongside kind of workers in that system, and in and, and in some ways it it would be nicer to be a bit more removed think because you could act more independently because there's always that pressure of keeping the system going you know Mm -hmm. when you've got someone in front of you and you think oh there is no other best way for you to protect yourself other than to make a change and that means to move yes yes but i know in helping you to to find that right way for you actually you have a knock-on effect yes. on everyone else yes. and that that is a constant yes. pressure Yes. and i i think the way i manage it is to just walk it like a tightrope every day
0: and that's certainly something that that strikes me I, I guess working very much independently in kind of independent practice that i have got that freedom that it does feel freeing to be able to really just think about what is right for this person to think with them about that without those pressures. And it's tricky when thinking about that knock-on effect, because I think that's something that people feel a lot, that sense they know that if they step out, if they step back, the impact on their colleagues is significant. And I think that keeps people going longer than they should sometimes, it's very hard.
1: But then that's partly what lends itself to being that kind of organizational phenomenon, doesn't it? It's, it's almost the, the ripple effect that goes through. So I think there is something of what that chronic workload pressure. And then that lack of supportive resources. And by that I don't mean nice places to go, et cetera, although that helps. But that kind of lack of good leadership, lack of good training, inability to take a, a kind of a proper restorative break, etc. So that constant kind of no-slack in the system, a sort of a, an unabled system. Means that actually collectively that's why the burnout happens. And I, I think you know that there, there is certainly something of there are others that have just that little bit more energy, just that slightly different style that energizes and keeps other people going, compensates a little bit. But actually, I to, to me I find that they're the ones who are at most risk of true burnout because they try so hard and they pull everyone else with them that actually they do it at their own expense. And I, I think that is, it, that is a risk of integrated psychologists in the system, but that's also a risk of a really good, compassionate leader, etc., no matter what their profession. So you can see that, that there is that kind of knock-on team effect. Everyone's trying together to manage this. And then individuals, ironically, I I remember it was one of the first things that I learned when I stepped into the world of workplace well-being. And it was a talk from the UK health and safety exec psychologist. And they said that there is evidence to prove that if you teach people self-care strategies in certain organizations such as the NHS, they become aware of how toxic their workplace is and they do the ultimate care, Which is to leave. So teaching resilience in inverted commas leads to higher staff turnover. Fascinating, isn't it? So so there is something of, of, you know, collectively we hang on in there together, but actually
0: it becomes each to their own and that's survival. One of the things that I've noticed and I wanted to check whether this is something you've come across is that often people kind of seek help at the point of, often they use the terms kind of breaking down, getting very distressed, for example, you know, in the car park, having arrived at work one day or or leaving and, and kind of feeling really overwhelmed and like something's shifted. But often it feels really tricky because the thing that happened that kind of sort of broke the camel's back was like a small thing. Just someone was a bit rude to them or, and not that this is a small thing, but the annual leave that they requested wasn't approved or something. And and I think people struggle to when their response seems really out of proportion to this little event, but actually we can see how that's sort of just the tip of the iceberg of a whole lot of things. And I, I think there's something initially that, that happens just to help people understand that and, and understand their response is that is that something
1: you see? Yeah, absolutely absolutely um, and it's it's usually that one case that one patient that one negative interaction with a family or with a colleague or as you say some something like annual leave or, or something like that but it, it it's the tipping point isn't it and I think this this is part of almost that that sort of that chronic problem, isn't it, with burnout that builds over time. You know, we think of, of trauma usually as incident-related, whereas burnout is that toxic buildup in a way. And there is some evidence, the, the evidence around burnout is really interesting and slightly shaky. But there is some evidence that actually not being able to kind of emotionally offload and process is one of the kind of predictive factors. burnout and you could see that actually if you think think of your example and you know i've got a fair few examples like that myself is is just those people who just build and build and build and build and there's no outlet and no let up and actually all that building each little block probably feels minor
0: until they just Mm. tip over and i'm wondering if to kind of Step back a bit and, and maybe reflect on, you know, the, the past few years or and where we are now. I'm curious to hear your thoughts because I guess, you know, for those of us who pre-pandemic, we we were aware of burnout and massive mental health sickness within the NHS, and it was a big problem then. And then obviously we've had the pandemic and enormous pressures that people are facing now. I'd just be interested to to hear your reflections on on the kind of landscape of burnout over the last few years and
1: and where you think that's going pre-pandemic burnout was high so the work we've done in intensive care said prevalence rates around about one in three which is pretty high compared to the general population i think what I have seen in broader NHS workers is a pull out all the stops because we think it will be short term and we think this is important, we're part of history, we're doing the right thing. So what I certainly saw it certainly in, in the first wave a little bit differently in the second wave was a all hands on deck and absolutely just expend all of your energy. And I think in in many ways, people had no other outlets and felt that it was going to be short term. So they just thought, well, this is okay. This is okay to do. And you look at particular areas, you know, I see you being one of those areas where lots of people joined in to help. And someone described that to me as snow days. So when you have a short term bad thing happen, but everyone just rallies and it's that. blitz mentality and we can do it and actually there was an awful lot of joy around let's not forget that we we enjoyed being absolutely heroic during that time I think many many people did I think probably the people who struggled the most were those people who were redeployed without choice See, they're, they're the ones that often get forgotten about. But I think that those that chose to and those that were already trained to felt like it's my time to shine, actually. What shifted was over time that social disintegration, though, didn't it? Because then everyone went back. Second wave, third wave, no extra help. And actually the attitude by the third wave was, well, you've coped. So what are you complaining about? Don't understand that. Rather than gratitude, continued gratitude. So you can see with the pull out all the stops, emotional exhaustion side of things, people would just wore themselves out. But actually what started to happen is, is almost this sense of the system doesn't care that you did that. Where's the gratitude? Where's the thanks? People have gone from banging pots in the street to swearing at people in a and I heard a story of the clapping in the A&E because someone actually managed to be triaged. So that is sarcastic clapping, if you like. So, so public attitudes have shifted towards the NHS, that sense of uh, they're exhausted and they now feel entitled. And I think what then happens is the NHS staff then tap into that disconnection where they feel like, you know what? You don't care, I don't care. I'm going to just sit back. I'm going to work to rule, actually. I'm not going to innovate. I'm not going to go on that social. If, if you can't be bothered, I can't be bothered. And actually, in amongst all of this, the system is so under pressure and overwhelmed, especially A&Es right now, where how can you ever feel like you're achieving something? It's actually really hard. So, so it's almost like the landscape for the possibility of burnout has just grown and grown and grown. And in amongst all of that, people's personal vulnerabilities towards depression, anxiety have been triggered. And then people have had traumatic experiences in amongst all of that. But ultimately, the key thing i see the depressing thing i see personally is that the psychological contract of work has been broken for nhs staff one of one of the predictive factors in burnout is reciprocity so if we give and we receive that protects us from burnout if we give and nothing comes back in return we're more likely to experience burnout. So that reciprocity that was implicit in the NHS, hard to grab, but that gratitude seems to be slipping. And actually, it, it feels like to, to, be, to be kind to uh, sort of managers, executive level, etc., it feels like it's not there for them either actually. I don't feel like they're being the mean ones. I I feel like, you know, if we were to kind of think about it in terms of sort of compassion focused ideas, I think everyone is in threat mode and they're just in their silos protecting their own. And that, and this is the thing that I've seen that's, that's worse within that, is that pro-social behaviour is really on a knife's edge in the NHS right now, you you have little glimmers of it and it's joyful when you get it. But generally speaking, people are edgy with each other now. And I think a lot of people have checked out because of that broken psychological contract. It feels like this is not what I signed up for. I'm not getting that implicit reward anymore. I'm just going to either work to rule, presenteeism, and check out
0: to protect myself, or, as we're seeing in their droves, leave. And as you were talking, it's just come to mind some of the, the kind of senior managers I've worked with, which has been very enlightening because they talk about exactly the same stuff. You know, often being shouted at, being expected to just pull rabbits out of hats, and the kind of creep of what's being asked of them, constant kind of more and more and more, and it f- seems small, but then when you look back, as you said, you know it's not what they signed up for, and it's impossible. It's impossible. So they can't feel good that they've achieved something because they've been asked to do impossible things, and and pitting. Then, you know, sometimes teams, I think, get fractured and, and you know, particularly in, at senior levels when it can be, you know, may not have many peers. When departments or, or functions are are then fighting each other for resources, it, it's yeah. horrible. It's
1: grim, isn't
0: it? I mean,
1: considering we're in the kind of provision of healthcare aren't we? It, you know, I, I often think we forget the care bit. But then also to you know out of out of kindness to people there's the inevitability of it as well isn't there we we function in teams if we know each other the maximum number is thought to be around about 10 to 12 people but the the teams i know are teams of 25 with a leader and 11 teams of 25 so actually it's not really teams That, that that's arbitrary Actually, that's just around kind of functionality of of doing appraisals and signing off annual leave. There there isn't that true social connection and that social embeddedness. And you're right. I, I think senior managers feel quite isolated. I think there's a lot of kicking up as well that happens towards managers as well who are not supported in that position, but feel that sense of
0: responsibility so Julie what can we do (laughs) (laughs) thinking about what helps from you know in a kind of individual level a team level and and maybe an organizational level as well so shall we start with Shall we start with the individual maybe what what helps trying to unpack it really i think that it, there are
1: some researchers that think the opposite to burnout is engagement so i often think to, to people what re-engages you what reconnects you with what you do so when i'm talking to an individual yes i'll, I'll talk about things like their the kind of stress management their emotional regulation all of all of that outlet for that stress but i'm also thinking about what's coming in What's invigorating you? What's connecting you? So I'm really thinking in terms of if we can we can manage the emotional exhaustion through boundary setting, through taking time out uh, to pacing. But actually, the, the, the more kind of underlying problem is managing the connection. Um, and reconnecting rather than that disconnecting. So, I, I would talk to people about almost finding one thing each day that feels like this is why I do this job. So, you're thinking about their core purpose, what they enjoy about the job, why they do that job. That's a really hard thing to do, but I think that's the thing that they need to kind of almost reshift their focus onto and there's different ways of doing that through conversation through keeping diaries etc but in essence pay attention to the good stuff the stuff that that matters to you to feel a sense of being reconnected with the work and celebrate every moment of achieving something within that achieving something it's finding that gratitude for achieving something so sometimes that means that actually what they need to do is go get some feedback, you know, go go talk to their co-workers, go talk to their team leader, see what could be forthcoming. Just to reinforce, actually, you're good at this job and you do do well to help them kind of feel reconnected
0: with the work. That's the, that's the main thing I do. What do you? Yeah, I mean, for me, it comes back to these three C's, compassion, connection and creativity, which is, is exactly, I guess, what you've been talking about there, compassion of looking after ourselves and, and supporting our, our needs and, and, and caring for what we've been through. And then the connection about, as you've said, kind of reconnecting with work. But I, I also wonder about, I often find that that what's also helpful is is for people to connect with things outside of work because I think especially for health professionals you know when your identity and your kind of self-worth is so tied up with your job and then that just feels like it's sucking your soul and there's no way out to kind of open up to other identities and, and other things that that bring you joy and meaning in life
1: yeah, um, yeah. I, I'd, I'd agree. And I, I think that's probably one of the things that really caused that counterbalance in the pandemic isn't it? in terms of where, where is my connection to my wider self? And actually, people thought there's nothing else to do. I'll work. And the, the balance has tipped. And I think a lot of a lot of what we're seeing now in terms of people changing the nature of their jobs is because they're kind of thinking after everything we've been through, work is not my priority anymore. So yeah, I think that's that's a really good thing, and and I guess for me you're right in in terms of that. I think almost that the a driving factor towards burnout is overwork drive, as well. So feeling like oh, I do more, um, so. It, Coming back to those energetic people who keep others going, they're the ones that seem the most vulnerable, because they they sort of say, let's try this, let's do this, let's do this, and kind of overwork, and then almost check out <laughs> as a, you know re- reach peak capacity. So having having things that meet that need for drive, mm. but aren't work related. Where they might achieve outside of work,
0: and that's where I think creativity can play a really great role in in kind of meeting some of those needs, but connecting to other things and kind of being able to rest, especially if you're someone who is very driven, finding ways of of being able to rest while still being active. Um, active rest, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah.
1: Yes. I, I use that phrase quite a bit. I think mean, that. The people I work with, and you know, I, I, I find I'm the same, struggle to sit still. So don't like the idea of relaxation or meditation or things like that, but love the idea of paddleboarding, cycling, you know, DIY, gardening, so, so, but then feel that that's bad. So I, I, I have coined that phrase of active rest to help them feel that, almost permission to that's how you can unwind through activity and also you know I think that that utility of movement and anything that's complex in a visual spatial way we know that that really helps with trauma processing and for me,
0: yeah, I, I know I talk about this a lot, but knitting is a, is a, <laughs> a great example of that. Oh, I'm terrible um, at knitting, so that would not for me. But... <laughs> <laughs> it's not for everyone. But I think it is. it has all of those elements in it of of being able to connect to things that you love, people that you love if you're making something for someone. It can be very complex, but also helps you to rest and Kind of tune into to what you need a bit so
1: do you want to know what mine are um i yeah uh, i cultivate succulents
0: oh wow <laughs> yeah. so, yes then, i can I, see
1: beautiful plants yes, behind yes, you now yes. <laughs> and i found because i uh, sort of got into the research around kind of different ways of trauma processing i found really highly complex jigsaws honestly I I, I've never been a jigsaw person I've always thought it was a bit (laughs) Um, (laughs) middle-aged and my husband bought me a a couple of really complex jigsaws uh, not last Christmas the Christmas before and and complex Lego as well actually atom five Lego and just incredible how you can absorb but also it just enabled my kind of thinking to sort of get clear. And I found I could just kind of step away and go, oh, all right." So I, I would certainly recommend uh, gardening Lego
0: and um, jigsaws yes. to people. Jigsaw. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> so, Julie, what about if we think at a team level? Because, you know, often people talk about how the team is... The thing that keeps them going, you know, those relationships in the team. It can also be the, the thing that causes a lot of pain if there is division and, and tension. But what can we do at a team level to support each other ourselves? I
1: think, you know, a key thing that we should do at a team level is spend any time together actually being a team instead of arbitrarily calling ourselves a team. So obviously if if there's chance for something social that can be useful but not everyone wants to engage with that kind of thing and there's the pressure of what kind of activity i think I, you know i've always found over the years the space to come together and reflect on the nature of what we do is surprisingly powerful and i, I think you know models such as as Schwartz and all the evidence for that but doing that on a very mini level because actually getting hundreds of people together is really hard work as the Schwartz model but I I would get sort of five six people together to talk through something that's happened at work but actually part of that is about processing an emotional outlet for the the sort of emotional toxins that are are building. But the team-based learning is learning how to be better for each other, hearing each other's perspectives, realizing they're not alone. So you're, you're in that connection, you're reconnecting the team. I think one of the really tricky things is there's been so much turnover in the NHS that actually that sense of team is really unstable. But it surprisingly doesn't take a lot just to get to know each other. So I, I did this thing uh, my um, own service where I facilitated a half day team event where we half of it was a game around, you know, everyone submitted their answers and then it was a game of guess who basically guess who said this about themselves and we just had a giggle with that and I think the thing that surprised me is I felt great afterwards actually so it was meant for them but I felt really good because I had that opportunity to connect and then the other sort of half of it was sort of saying this is what's going on so they felt connected to almost their, their place within the system and know what they're contributing towards. So it's that that sense of connection and that sense of belonging as well, kind of those two things and those perspective taking. I think that's that's quite important. I guess, you know, there's a part of me that's a little averse to just plonking in something that feels like, oh, here's just an event for people to go to because I think a really key thing around teams is feeling safe to be yourself and that psychological safety and if if there hasn't been almost the structure and framework of work to create that that sense than to say let's all go on a kayaking course together. People may not already have those that safety at work, and it may extrapolate and actually make things worse. So I'm very, although I'm not against that kind of team building idea. I think that works well when the team's are already functioning, but just wants to get to another level. I mean, there's something about the boundaries and the fundamentals within work. Which are key. I guess the other side to that, when you say we did that, I think what we can do is come up alongside leaders, supervisors, and help them to be in the position of doing that. You know, one of the things that we have to be cautious of in, psycho- in psychology and in those positions, especially if we're integrated, or you know, sometimes even worse if we're helicoptered in, is. We can be the nice guy, we can play good cop and that ends up just making the the senior team the bad cop. You know they've you get me, but they've sent me to you. They couldn't be bothered themselves. So, and that's something I've learned over the years. Is actually the better position for a psychologist is is what I call a stagehand rather than the main event. Actually, we should be kind of be enabling from behind the scenes and helping people think. What could I say? How could I approach this? How can I puzzle through what's going on with maybe particular tricky individuals in my team or what's going on in terms of my team purpose so I I think there's there's that as a position as well as being in that facilitating team Mm. awareness kind of space
0: and what about at an at a more organizational
1: level (laughs) (laughs) well my organization (laughs) my my NHS organization is one of 16,000 people (laughs) Because wow. that's the way health boards are, are set up in Wales. Yes. So, ah, yes. I mean, mo- most NHS trusts are about four or five thousand people. My ICU is three hundred and fifty people, which is the same size as the village I live in. Oh wow! So, <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's really important to make that kind of distinction because I kind of think about one of my random side things I do is I run the community cinema in my village. I oh, wow. my It's lovely. And mm. it's so hard to please everyone because it's film and it's so hard to please everyone. But it's a really important point of learning for, for kind of leadership in, in organisations, if you like, which is I can't get everyone in my village to agree. So why would we think that everyone in my intensive care would agree? Mm-hmm. There, there is more of a connected purpose in intensive care than there is in my village, but actually, it's the same number of people. So so I, I just put that out there in terms of realism of helping at that organisational level. I guess, however, there are things that do seem to help. I think what helps as an organisation is setting that tone and that tone of interest and caring and gratitude towards staff. I think it particularly helps to rather than take that kind of position of don't forget well-being services are here that you can self-refer to. Don't forget to sign up to a course, blah, 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 blah. It takes much more of a position of we recognise that you'll thrive at work if you're given those core conditions to thrive at work. And we recognise that that's about how we support your leaders. That's about how we enable your skill set. That's about how we designate your physical Area. That's how we enable you to not spend twenty minutes hunting for a parking space before you have to come on shift. You know, so from all of those kind of needs, really interesting presentation. Totally separate to psychology, but using psychology in, in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I saw literally a couple of weeks ago where the guy said if someone's not enabled at those core levels you can't go up here so we can't talk about self-actualization and what we're all here for if you can't park you know you might think of it in a totally different area in that we can't talk to people who are starving about self-actualization And actually, this is something that's fundamentally kind of tricky at that organisational level in the NHS, isn't it? That other organisations don't struggle with because Google doesn't have these conversations about burnout, does it? Google has conversations about thriving and psychological safety. But actually, the NHS doesn't get those first couple of levels of Maslow right Actually, and it, you know, it was infuriating during the pandemic to see out, out of work pilots coming into the NHS and setting that up for us is humiliating almost because that's how bad it is. So I I, I think that there are things that, that organizations try to do that are far too nebulous and disconnected from that core purpose. And it it says so much more if a chief exec dons PPE and walks onto a ward than it does if they do a big Q&A. That's not to say they shouldn't do their Q&A, but actually it's in those kind of, again, coming back down to that social connection. If they walk around and they say, oh, hey, gosh, I can see how that doesn't work and you've reported it and reported it. Let me undo that chink in the system so that we can get your pipe work working because your your toilets and sinks constantly block, for example. That's that's an example from recently <laughs> for me. So, so I think there's too much of an acting big and acting at a high level when we should really come down and get some of the those basic conditions to work well so those are physical conditions and those are tangibly skills to do the job another thing to add sorry hot off the press is a about to be published a big study of demands versus resources in icu nurses actually one of the really interesting things in terms of they measured burnout and ptsd and generalized distress and what they looked at Multiple regression analysis, were what were the predictors of those? And demands of work are not predicted of those. It's the resources, but it isn't a leaflet as a resource or a cake stand as a resource. It's integrated resource of attitudes, approach, availability of leaders, education, all of those things, so those job-based resources which I think is a really important thing to appeal to if there's any overwhelmed manager listening to your podcast. We, we can't reduce the demands in the NHS. In fact, they're going to grow and grow and grow and grow unless we start doing what they do in places like Canada, which is saying this year we don't do liver transplants, etc. They just cut services in order to do other services well. But what we can do is we can think about the way in which we get the basic resources right so that people can mitigate those demands because people enjoy working
0: hard if they're enabled to do so. And I think there's something just about humanising the system and, you know, I I think that links with what you were talking about, the reciprocity Mm -hmm. and, you know, just really seeing the workforce as people who have just you know basic needs that need to be met in order for them to do these very complex demanding things every day you know day after day after day and I think that's a a real pain point for people is when they just feel so dehumanized by the work and I think as you're saying I think there's a role for us as psychologists isn't there to kind of just come back to those basics and and keep banging on about it
1: Absolutely. So there's something else I want to add in, in terms of the individual. So I coined a new phrase with a colleague of mine, Matt Morgan, who lots of people know, he's very, he's very out there on social media. And we coined a phrase together, which was burn in. And the idea is, it's a theoretical idea, but we both strongly believe in it, is that actually people do disconnect to cope. So they disc in and people who are clinically facing disconnect to cope because they feel emotionally overwhelmed. And actually that's bad for them. So instead of stepping back, we were talking about stepping in. So that idea instead of burning out, you burn in. And it comes from Matt wrote a book and I helped him contact various people that he wrote about in the book. And he said the thing that was amazing is that when he wrote the book, he learned more and more and more about people's in-depth stories. And he anticipated that would be bad for him. He anticipated that as an ICU doctor, that would overwhelm him, make it harder for him to do his work if he humanized his patients and their families too much then he wouldn't be able to make these really difficult decisions, and there's lots, there's lots of kind of literature to suggest that, and there's something of the in that intelligent kindness kind of literature, Penelope Campling stuff that does talk about sort of healthy disconnection from the work, and I would agree with that, but you can d- disconnect unhealthily, disconnect too far. So that idea that we talked about is actually if you can reconnect with patients and patient stories and you can find that humanity there is a whole project called the humanization of icu actually it's a spanish project but staff often refer to a patient by their bed area bed number rather than their first name or they refer to a patient by their condition rather than their first name and they think that that's protective and actually it causes more disconnection and burnout through so that that yeah so it's just a a cute phrase burning we
0: connect thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast please do share it with others post about it on social media or leave a rating and review i'd love to connect with you so do come and find me on linkedin or twitter You can also sign up to my mailing list to keep up to date with future episodes and get useful psychology advice and tips straight to your inbox. All the links are in the show notes. Thanks again, and until next time, take good care.